This series comes with a content note for anyone who has been through abuse or knows someone who has. Statistically, that is a lot of us. Some of what you'll hear in this podcast is distressing. Although we know it's important to hear directly from victim survivors about what they've been through, this content may be confronting and won't be suitable for everyone. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, supporting long-term financial independence for victim survivors through ComBank Next Chapter. We acknowledge that we produce this series on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. Obviously, it's very difficult, I think, to navigate this territory with young children because on one hand, you do want them to get to know this person and have a a memory of them, even though they don't get to meet them. But on the other hand, I do not want to give my children the impression that death is imminent. I don't like to make them feel that sense of fear for their lives the same way that I felt. Domestic violence cases have surged in Sydney. A husband accused of stabbing his wife. In a shocking domestic violence attack. Domestic violence is a national crisis. We've had an absolute tragedy occur here tonight. My name is Theron Chavler and I'm a writer, lawyer and anti-violence advocate. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home, a podcast about family violence that puts the voices of survivors at the centre of the story. Today we'll introduce you to the truly remarkable Amani Haider. I'm Amani Haider and over the past few years I've been making art and writing and working in the advocacy space supporting and advocating for women's health and safety in my local community. Both Amani and her sister Noor have joined us for an episode that's all about healing. Today we ask, what's next? for survivors of intimate partner violence. And also, we ask what's next for the loved ones who are left behind. My own family was deeply impacted by men's violence. We were hurt in the most extreme way when my sister Nikki was murdered by her partner. As a family, we know firsthand that the impacts of abuse persist long after the violence has ended, both for primary victims and for their families. You'll remember Nicole Yade, the Director of Client Operations at the Women and Girls Emergency Centre from earlier episodes. A family violence survivor herself, Nicole recognises that healing from trauma is neither straightforward nor a linear process. I think healing looks different for every woman I meet. Sometimes that's about, you know, just purging emotion and letting it all out. Sometimes that's about, you know, connecting with others and sharing experiences and, and cheering each other on. And all of those things help us heal and it takes a community for us to heal. There's nothing wrong with being that angry victim you don't have to be lovely and graceful and gracious all the time and in relation to that experience I think we also need to be mindful of the pressure that society puts on victims of crime to also be forgiving and conversely to being angry you're encouraged to be really forgiving to be passive to the point of apathy I think. Anger is an emotion that tends to be derided 
But constructive anger, that has its place, and it can be necessary for early healing. Anger can be a doorway to expressing one's feelings about the trauma that you've experienced. It's part of building an internal story about what's happened to you. I grew up in a family of six in Bexley and the St. George area. My parents both came to Australia as migrants from Lebanon. Armani says that she and her sisters had a mixed upbringing. They were encouraged to do well at school and to pursue empowering careers. Yet at the same time, the environment in which they were raised was culturally traditional and very strict. As a young person, I saw my parents through a really positive lens, even though I didn't always understand why they were doing things or what they were saying. But I did sense a lot of conflict between them and I witnessed a lot of conflict between them. And well, my parents are incompatible. Individually, they're fine, but together they're not. And I think I accepted a lot of toxic behaviour in my environment from my father as being, well, that's just who he is and that's just how men are. And, you know, we've just got to find a way to sidestep that. And it wasn't until a lot later that I started to reassess that perspective. Armani was pregnant with her first baby in 2015 when a cousin called her, panicking, and through a jumble of mixed-up sentences, she told Armani to get to the hospital immediately. It was there that Amani learned her father had murdered her mother, Salwa. The last time Ola Haider saw her father, he had a knife in his hands. Today, when they came face to face, it brought her to tears. The 20-year-old bravely telling the Supreme Court, I heard my mum scream. I tried to get in the middle of it and pull him away. He didn't stop. He kept going. He'd killed his wife of 28 years by stabbing her repeatedly in a frenzied attack, in which Amani's younger sister, Ola, was also injured. It was a massive shock. It was very difficult to just process mentally. I wasn't feeling well at all physically. I was just ill at the whole thought of it and really struggling to accept or understand what had happened and just feeling totally numb at the same time and really what do you do you know you don't really expect people from your life or from your family unit to be capable of that kind of violence and my biggest concern then became how do I protect my sisters what do we do tomorrow how do I sort out their living situation my mum's villa is a crime scene how do we even organize a funeral my name is Noor Haider. I'm a journalist with the ABC. I cover federal politics at Parliament House and I am Amani Haider's younger sister. Amani and I were in different phases of our lives back in 2015 when my mum was murdered. Amani was pregnant for the first time. She was married. She'd moved out of the family home by that stage. I was still living with my mum and my dad prior to that with my younger sister. And so I think Strangely, the dynamic shifted again where Amani and my brother-in-law, Molly, invited both Ola and I to live with them. So now it was myself, my husband, my two sisters and a baby on the way. And obviously that was something that we'd never anticipated. And, you know, my husband and I laugh about it now that we've raised teenagers already. <laughs> Lula Dembele is a passionate advocate for survivors of abuse. In 2018, she established the Accountability Matters Project, 
to reframe domestic violence away from being a women's issue. A survivor herself, Lula understands the complexity of healing from trauma. Recovery is critical because it affects how our brain interprets the world and it affects our behaviour and it's an injury that occurs because of abuse. It also helps if we can do trauma recovery, that helps women's, anyone who's experienced trauma, function properly, realise their own safety. And recovery, I think, should be included too. You know, obviously help a woman find financial stability, find access to those resources, gain employment, do all these other things. But all of her ability to do that, usually, or any victim's ability to do that, relies on our trauma and our triggers and all of that being effectively supported and managed. As Lula explains, recovery is about more than the fading of physical or even emotional scars. In the aftermath of enduring family violence, survivors need access to resources, the resources that will help keep them safe. Financial security is often an important prerequisite for psychological healing. Here's Claire Dawson of ComBank's Next Chapter program again. Financial security is critical to helping someone heal after trauma. Really, financial independence gives a person choices. It helps them decide where they want to live, what they want to do and really who they want to be. So having that stability and security in your finances, it, it can give someone confidence. It may be confidence they've never had or, or they've lost because they've been with an abusive partner. I remember really getting to work when we got home that evening and sorting out my sister's pillows and blankets so that she could sleep and cleaning up the kitchen so that there weren't any knives lying around and just these really small details. And I remember people speaking to us at the hospital, giving us information about social support and psychologists and counselling and things like that and me trying to sort of store all this information for later because I knew we were going to need it, but I didn't even have the headspace at that point to really understand what I needed to do beyond those small practical steps that would get us through that night. We were all so consumed in our own grief that we weren't necessarily seeing how the grief was perhaps amplified for somebody else at different times or was compounded with other things as well. But the reason I don't think I realised that was because Amani didn't make an issue of the various struggles that she was having as well, becoming a new mum at such a difficult time because that's just the person she sort of is. So... I really admire her for that, you know, opening her home and having two big kids there before she's able to bring her baby into this world. Nicole Yade says that healing is at the core of everything that she and her colleagues do and should be front of mind for anyone who's working in the sector. What we've got to make sure that we're doing is offering people the support and services and care and love and time to make sure that they're healing from those experiences and, you know, learning new skills and being supported in how they have to navigate all of these huge complex systems that exist in our community, you know, like going to court and navigating the police and social security and housing. You know, housing is such a massive issue for women who are leaving violence. And, you know, it's just not possible usually to do it by yourself. In Australia, 62% of women who experience intimate partner violence are in the paid workforce. A study by KPMG 
estimates that domestic abuse costs the economy at least $22 billion a year. And so it's very much a workplace issue as well as a legal one. In 2021, the Fair Work Commission amended the Fair Work Act. As a result, all Australian employees, and that includes part-time and casual employees, are now entitled to five unpaid days of family and domestic violence leave each year. This is obviously good news, but does the change go far enough? I'm Michelle O'Neill and I'm the president of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Michelle O'Neill and the Australian Unions want employees who experience domestic violence and abuse to have access to paid leave. They don't want time off work prompted by violence to cause further financial hardship for victim survivors as well. We're people first and of course our work life and our private life interconnect all the time and we see that family and domestic violence, the impact of that is dramatic in terms of working women predominantly but but also some men and it impacts in all sorts of ways. It impacts on their capacity to go to work, their ability to do the job And importantly, it also impacts on their ability to be able to escape and survive violence. Because if you have to take time off work, and we know to be able to leave is a really timely and costly exercise. You just think of moving house when you're not escaping violence. But if you're escaping violence, there's all the additional measures likely to be involved, things like dealing with the police, dealing with the court system, dealing with lawyers, dealing with your children's school, your housing. And if you're trying to do that and you need time off to get that happening and your partner is monitoring your finances, then you are actually at increased risk of being killed. Data from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency shows that two-thirds of large corporate employers have a strategy in place to support employees who experience family violence. But only 35% offered paid leave, and even fewer made additional financial support available. Many larger organisations, like Combank, our partner for this podcast, are leading the way, and now offer unlimited paid domestic violence leave. But there are also millions of Australians who work for a small or medium-sized business who just don't have the financial capability to offer this kind of support. This means that the vast majority of working survivors have to relinquish a week or more of paid employment if family violence and its ramifications prevents them from participating. A decade ago, unions in a world-leading effort started to advocate and campaign for paid family and domestic violence leave. And it's now over 10 years since we won our first rights for paid family and domestic violence leave in agreements for workers. And over the last decade, that's now extended to like one in three workers now have access to some form of paid family and domestic violence leave. But it's a campaign that we're not giving up on. We want to make sure that it's a right for every single worker. While the campaign continues for Michelle O'Neill, Armani and others just like her are trying to get through each day. Armani is incredibly eloquent. She speaks so beautifully and painfully about the practical tasks which have become her responsibility 
in the aftermath of her dear mother's murder. When we cleaned up my mum's house, I recovered two massive family photo albums that were the ones that we would sit down, flip through, have a laugh about, get to know overseas family members through it, look at all these old black and white photos of great-grandparents and homeland and things like that. And I brought them home and I was like, oh, this is going to be really upsetting to go through for my sisters. So what I decided to do was go out and I, I don't know, there's something a little bit comical about this, but it's also incredibly sad and frustrating. I went out and bought a new photo album and basically sorted out the whole old album and took out all the photos of my dad. After losing her mother to an act of horrendous family violence, Amani's relationships with other men were also impacted. I struggled to know how to interact with men because I hadn't been exposed to any who weren't sort of figures of authority in my world. And I therefore just protected myself by not being around a lot of masculine energy and had lots of wonderful friendships with lots of girls my age and then later on with lots of women. And I still at times actually feel that way. But I remember early on in my career realising that you have to find a way to relate to colleagues, for example, that's not just the way that you would relate to your dad. And in order to have a voice in your workplace, in order to be assertive, in order to be respected as a professional, you can't be uh, a daughter in, in a workspace environment. Armani and her sisters have been forced to look back on their childhood and wonder when their mother may have been feeling scared or unsafe in her own home. Armani has questioned the male role modelling that she grew up with. Too many of us as little girls have seen relationships modelled to us that haven't been healthy at all. And if we're thinking about as we grow, the decisions we make about our own relationships, we've got to unpick all of this stuff that has been kind of implanted many years ago and for many years as we've grown up as children. You know, it kind of takes us back to that whole gender inequality thing. How do I speak to my children if you're at home? What is the role modelling my partner and I do or the other adults in the house do? So there's that kind of, in my own world, what happens in my partnerships and my relationships? You just heard from Paddy Kinnersley, the CEO at Our Watch. There hasn't been an organisation in this country that's focused on the primary prevention of violence against women. Our Watch was established eight years ago to do that role with support from every state and territory government, which is so important. And it's the only one of its type in the world, actually. It's a really advanced way of thinking. It's a really important organisation. Our Watch uses a strong base of evidence to guide its policy recommendations. Evidence tells us unequivocally that while domestic abuse can happen to anyone... What we've understood through really solid research is that it's gender inequality playing out in all the places we spend our time that's driving violence against women. So workplaces, sporting organisations, in our interaction with the media, in our education settings, and that it's disrespect towards women in all of those places, attitudes, behaviours and structures that don't value women as equals that set a foundation for violence against women to occur. At the time of recording this episode, Australia's fourth national action plan to reduce violence against women and their children was still in the draft stage, with the government considering feedback from the public and the sector. 
And while that plan hasn't been finalised, the draft draws strongly on our watch's change the story framework, which I've already mentioned in this series. So change the story, which is a document we've developed, which is the national framework for the prevention of violence against women and their children. So we've got the evidence base, then we've developed a national framework. So change the story says... This is what we need governments to do. We need governments to make sure their policy is enabling gender equality. We need to make sure that frameworks and funding and the policy levers are actually promoting gender equality and not inadvertently discriminating against women or or inadvertently advantaging men. But it also then says this is the job of workplaces. This is the job of sporting organisations. Actually, communities need to do this. So I think what's so important about Change the Story as a national framework is that it outlines that everybody has a role. Every one of us has a sphere of influence and you don't have to be the Prime Minister or a CEO. You can be a sports coach or a parent or just in your own relationship, but every one of us has a little piece of work we can do to promote an environment where women are treated as equal. While Paddy makes the point that everyone has a role in preventing and condemning violence, there's no community roadmap for what role to take after horrific violence, how to respond and how to support someone's healing. In the intervening years since Amani and Noor lost their mother, In the most awful of circumstances, their healing hasn't been linear. Grief is complex. It looks different on everyone. And Noor warns us that we shouldn't assume that someone is coping just because they present that way publicly. I think to outsiders, someone who looks entirely composed doesn't look like they're grieving. And so I don't like to make assumptions sometime. I haven't really spoken to anyone about it before, but I definitely have this sense of detachment from before to after and this like huge gap in the timeline of my life in that two years between the murder and the trial where I don't think I was really processing things that were happening in my world. I was really traumatised. I have almost no memory of things that happened in that two years. It can be exhausting and it can be really emotionally draining to have to continually explain and relive what you've experienced and dissect it in order to articulate it to other people so they can get a better understanding of it. And I always remind myself that that may be the case, but I know that it's one thing to be composed and out there in the world but privately at home you know grief is not this one sort of linear process how do you reclaim moments from your childhood that were positive and there were positive moments life isn't sort of just one thing you have good days and how do you kind of hold on to those and treasure them when something has really discolored or destroyed your connection or your emotional connection to those moments and for me it's been really about focusing on the things that I want to honour and hold on to for the future, and that's things that involve my mum, my sisters, 
my grandmother and my maternal relatives because unfortunately my dad's family sided with him and to the point where they still to this very day leave happy birthday messages on his Facebook wall knowing how that makes us feel to the point that they attended court in solidarity with him. Armani has worked as a commercial lawyer. She understands how a courtroom works. And yet she found the experience of being face-to-face with her father for the first time since he murdered her mother deeply distressing. Not least of which, because Armani's father argued that Salwa's death was unintentional because he had lost control due to his depression. Armani also felt a deep sense of responsibility to her mother. In a homicide, the primary victim has passed away. They're not able to give evidence of their experiences. They're not able to speak to the character of the person who's been accused of the murder. They're not able to talk about all the things that they went through or all the red flags that they might have seen that might have been hidden from other people. When someone pleads guilty or is found guilty of a crime, then a victim impact statement gives the victim, their family and their friends the chance to speak about how the crime has affected them personally. After Salwa was murdered, Amani took on the responsibility of telling the court in detail what it meant for her and her sisters. I wrote this statement believing that it would allow me to reclaim my power, that it would be a moment where I could feel empowered and feel like I'd I'd had a say. And I read it out in court and that was relatively empowering compared to what the rest of the proceedings were like. But afterwards I was like, you know what, there's still so much to say. Even though I had also given a victim impact statement, because I think that's the most empowering thing that our legal system really offers victims, I still felt that I was a footnote in all of this and that even though so much of my life had been damaged and turned upside down by my father's actions, the remedies available were minimal and there was nothing the legal system could do for me after that point to resolve all those other problems that had been left in the wake of the murder. But I do have optimism and if I didn't, I don't think I'd be able to get up in the morning and go to work and do the small things in life. It's not always obviously easy because the gravity of what has happened is sometimes incredible and just overpowering. And there are some days where it feels like the world, for me at least, is pretty bleak. For Amani, peace comes in the form of her children and her artistic expression. I had this desire to paint a self-portrait and enter the Archibald Prize. And I wanted to do that in 2017. But there was still so much happening with my dad's trial that I didn't get to it. And it wasn't until early 2018 that I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'll just buy myself a big canvas. Anyone can enter. You don't need permission. You don't need to go to art school. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. Just do it and see what happens. And I had about two weeks to do it. And I just painted day in, day out. The kids were like, just feed them, keep painting. (laughs) And I got it done on time. (laughs) And it was just really exciting to just finish it. Nicole Yade says that healing looks different for every survivor that she meets. For some women, that's going to be in a more traditional counselling setting, an appointment once a week for an hour, a closed door. 
But for some people, that's going to be time in nature. For some people, it's going to be sitting in an art class, you know, having a yarn with other women. For some people, it's going to be singing or music, you know. We've got to think about healing in a really broad way. There's lots of different things that people can try that might help them heal a little bit on the way, you know, and sometimes that's about trying something new and being good at it and having a new experience of confidence or self-esteem. Sometimes that's about just purging emotion and letting it all out. Sometimes that's about, you know, connecting with others and sharing experiences and, and cheering each other on. And all of those things help us heal and it takes a community for us to heal. In 2018, Amani became a finalist in the Archibald Prize, Australia's most prestigious portraiture competition. Her entry was a self-portrait. In the work, Amani is holding a photo of her mother Salwa, who's then holding a photo of her own mother, Amani's grandmother. Amani has since stretched her creative wings even further. Her book, The Mother Wound, was published in 2021 and long-listed for the Walkley Book Award. In it, Amani reckons with the personal, cultural and spiritual weight of her mother's murder and her deep loss. I had no doubt when I saw her scribbling the initial template for her Archibald Prize in her living room one evening as we were sort of snacking on cheese and drinking tea. And she was like, do you think this is a good idea? I don't know. I'm like, you're going to get in. This is an incredible, incredible concept. And I watched that evolve over time. And what do you know? She was a finalist and her piece was hanging there in the gallery and it was incredible to see. Armani insists that despite the nourishment her art provides that there are still days when she struggles to find light in the darkness. I had lost so much confidence. I used to have to speak publicly in courtrooms and I used to be a confident, outgoing person and trauma had taken away so much of that. So it had taken me a long time to begin expressing myself, let alone sharing my work with the public. But I do talk about my mum. My mum's sort of my muse. She's part of my art, she's part of my writing, she was always really motivated and energetic and had this really upbeat energy around her, that's something that I strongly associate with my mum and after we went to school she started doing her own courses, she learned how to use a computer, she improved her English skills and she was such a fast learner and so keen to do things that it kind of came easily to her and she was a very protective mum and very attentive to what we looked like and making sure we were clean and well presented and proper and well mannered. I do look at Amani's art and I have read her book and I have seen her pursue her activism and her advocacy and it's just another facet of her that I watch with great admiration because I personally feel like perhaps I'm not as further along on that healing journey. I really hope that in doing this work, it isn't really about my own story alone. 
It's about creating space for other women, for other Muslim women, for other women from migrant families, for women of colour to come forward and feel comfortable talking about their very nuanced and complex experiences. And they might be different to mine. They might, you know, even challenge my own. But I think without creating that space, we're not going to empower women to grow from their experiences or heal from their experiences or even have a say in terms of policy direction and where society goes in the future. Amani is an incredible woman. Not only has she been forced to comprehend her grief in a very public way, but she's done so while creating truly beautiful art. Through her work, she gifts the community the chance to go inside her world, inside her mother's world, and to better understand the complex realities of family violence. I will be forever grateful to Amani and to Moe for no questions asked, bringing us into their home, providing us with all the comfort we needed at the hardest time of our lives, and then supporting us when we needed to sort of go out there and do our own thing in the sort of years beyond that. I think some of the most powerful discoveries that I've made through just reading about other women's experiences and writing about my own have been in relation to the validity of our anger and how important it is to be allowed to be angry and to express those angry thoughts and how anger is part of the pursuit of justice. There's a lot to be angry about and we should be angry about it. Amani, Noor and their family are each processing their feelings in different ways. The reality is that healing looks different for everyone, and even rage has its place. In the final episode of There's No Place Like Home, you'll meet a survivor who's walked this path long before, a woman who experienced horrific abuse nearly 20 years ago, a woman who's not only come to terms with what happened to her, but has dedicated her life to ensuring that it never happens to anyone else. Deborah will show us how she rediscovered and redefined herself in the wake of violence and built a life of purpose and passion. I'll never be back to where I was before the abyss. I've changed irreparably, but I've also changed the better. See you then. There's No Place Like Home is a future women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you are worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash nextchapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It will help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Sally Spicer, Tarang Chawla, Fleur Bitcon, Ella Jackson, Ruby Leigh Gatfield, India Bailey and Kate Lever. Editing by Bad Producer Productions. Artwork by Patty Andrews.